Democracy, a word derived from the Greek roots demos, meaning people, and kratia, meaning power. Together, people power. Democracy is viewed as an ideology, a governmental system, or in the words of late civil rights activist John Lewis, not as a state, but as an act for each generation to do its part. In a democracy, the people live under the laws of their choosing. By consenting to follow those laws or acting to change them, the people's rights and freedoms are protected. To many, democracy is the sacred foundation of America. To engage in civic duty, participate in elections, and consent to policy is what it means to be an American. For these people, the words United States and democracy are nearly synonyms. To others, American democracy is not, has never been, and likely never will be. For them, the phrase United States democracy is a contradiction. I'm Noura Ahmed. And I'm Eliza Craig, and this is Democracy, a podcast from Themester. On this, the final episode in the Democracy podcast, Nora and I speak with the four professors who co-taught the class Sex, Race, and Voting Rights. I'm Lisa Marie Napoli. I'm the director of the PACE Political and Civic Engagement Program and a co-chair of the Big Ten Voting Challenge. I'm Stephanie Sanders. I'm a professor and the chair of the Department of gender studies. I'm Wendy Gamber, and I'm a professor of history and the chair of the history department. Hi, I'm Lauren McLean, and I'm the department chair in political science, and I teach African politics and politics around the world. I was curious how this course came about and why it was only offered for this semester. Well, I'm looking at Lisa Marie because it was her idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we were all very enthusiastic, but I probably opened my mouth more than I should have. Um, (laughs) But we were all sitting at a round little table in the provost's office. Provost had called us all together and we were talking about the 100-year centennial commemorating the 19th Amendment. And I have to say, I was amazed because the provost invited so many terrific women. And these women were there, but there were also other women from around campus. And looking around that table, I was just so excited about the female leadership on campus. Yeah, thank you for giving a sense of the setting there. Yeah, so we were very enthusiastic. We started to talk about, wouldn't it be wonderful if we offered a class that talked about women's suffrage? And then Wendy started just jumping in with a historical lens. And and then we started to talk about sex issues, race issues, and voting rights. And that's kind of how it came together. Yeah, we, we thought if we talked about suffrage or the 19th Amendment, that students might not know what that meant. So we changed the title to Sex, Race, and Voting Rights. And I think, Wendy, it may have been you that you know, we were all sort of gearing up and thinking about this big celebration, but also thinking about what were some of the things that were missing from the treatment of these topics and that we wanted to really be critical in thinking about this topic from multiple lenses. And we also thought we could tie it in with the semester on democracy. It just seemed like such a wonderful opportunity to, we were all enthusiastic and we all realized we wanted to learn more about it ourselves. And we wanted to be able to share the opportunity with students. Yeah, and the coincidence with the election too was just tremendous. So it's been quite a semester. (laughs) Yeah, a turbulent one to tie into 
issues a hundred years ago that continue today. So how did you go about creating the course material and the curriculum? Did you consider the election that would be going on this semester? And how did that play into creating the course? Well, we decided that we would rely primarily on guest speakers because I, for example, I'm a, I'm a historian of U.S. women. The suffrage is not my specialty by any means. And I was thinking back to a time in the 1980s when I was a TA in an introductory women's studies class at Brandeis University, where I got my doctorate. And the class was entirely a different guest speaker every week. And since we are all department chairs or program directors and are busy people, that seemed to be one way to make this manageable. So we have different guest speaker every week and at least, and tonight we're having uh, the provost, Provost Robel is, is coming to our class. Uh, and that's just been a, a wonderful experience because not only have I learned so much, but it's just so fun to see different teachers in action and learn from them, watch them interact with students. And it's just been an incredible experience. And I would say too, that one of the terrific things is drawing on everybody's respective networks. So it's not just our departments, but also colleagues and other people we know that are doing interesting work. So we've had guest professors, but we've also had interactions with filmmakers and with the political candidates. So we thought about not just voting, but also the candidates and the activists and the others who are all kind of supporting and mobilizing on these issues. So that's really enriched the class and the discussions. Mm -hmm. And we allowed the class to really be adaptable and flexible as the semester moved on. As opportunities came up, a, a film discussion, panelists, we were able to adapt our class accordingly, really, to, to integrate mm -hmm. all that, to learn from all of these outside incredible sources and peoples and films. It was, it's just been very rich, as my colleagues have mentioned. And I have um, to say, I was a little nervous about this podcast because I don't consider myself an expert in these issues, but I was delighted to participate when we thought about what is this class contributed and, and what have we learned? Because I can't begin to tell you I've learned so much. I mean, this is one of the great joys about being on a college campus like IU. I, I feel the same way. I've learned so much listening to all these different colleagues and having the opportunities to listen to panels of women who ran for office and who have various political roles, things that I wouldn't necessarily be exposed to. It's just been terrific and makes you really appreciate being at IU. It was great that none of us had to be the expert in suffrage. <laughs> you know, we could just put the pieces together. I had taught this intensive freshman seminar on suffrage, but I still had such a steep learning curve of new information that came in through all of these incredible people. Is there any topic or issue you included in your course that you felt was often omitted? I think race was really one of the first things that we really wanted to be mindful of. And, and that, I think, it was not just us as teachers who were thinking, and we're not the first to add this to the discussion, um, but really being thoughtful about that throughout and thinking critically about how these narratives were constructed 
and then revised over time and, and how people thought about them differently. There were so many additions in terms of thinking about not just the Black women who contributed to the suffrage fight, but also thinking about other sort of historically excluded groups like the Native Americans. We had a discussion around and thinking about sexual orientation and all kinds of different movements for inclusion. But certainly race was really on, don't you think race was really Mm -hmm. on the minds of our students after this past summer? Yeah, Um, I I totally agree with you, Lauren. I think that the ability to kind of tie it to contemporary issues, including what's been happening in the summer, the the just magnifying glass that's in place on racism. The other thing is we also were able to incorporate COVID a little bit because we Mm -hmm. had a a presenter talk about um, countries with women leaders and how they've done better during this whole COVID pandemic. So we've talked about leadership in in this contemporary setting too. I think one of the themes of our course, and Lauren referred to it with the narratives, is storytelling, right? We Mm -hmm. got to hear Mm -hmm. a lot of stories. We got to think about stories. Professor Gamber recruited Lisa Tetro, who Mm -hmm. reminded us of thinking about, you know, where do these stories come from and what's sort of behind the stories? What are the biases and what do we need to think about when we hear a story? I think that's been a very powerful part of our course. And I think we've done a pretty good job of bringing to light stories and voices and people's names that traditionally, historically have been overlooked, um, mostly women Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that respect. And especially women of color. And I think it's been, to me, very exciting to, to, to learn those stories and to honor them and mark them for mm-hmm. the rightful recognition that they deserve. Our very first guest was Lisa Tetro, who teaches at Carnegie Mellon University, who wrote this wonderful book called The Myth of Seneca Falls, where she argues in part that our understanding, our standard understanding of the women's suffrage movement is thus because we take the history of women's suffrage written by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton as the truth, when in fact it was a construction as all histories are. And it was payback really for people whom they disagreed with. They just kind of left out of the story in really uh, fascinating ways. And so It was really great to start off with Lisa because she said, always think about whose story is being told and whose is not. To be able to deconstruct something that it's like upheld to hear like Columbus Mm -hmm. discovering America (laughs) and like watch it crumble in front of your eyes. That's that's incredible. And we've sort of watched it crumble repeatedly (laughs) over the course, but from different perspectives. So you asked about the way the course was designed. We've kind of started with that historical lens and then did the political science perspective and then gender studies and then pace. But there was still integration throughout. We kind of kept coming back to some of these themes from different perspectives. So yeah, I do feel like we've seen it crumple a couple of different times. Yeah, you all bring these different huge amounts of expertise. That would be really interesting, yeah. I would love to get a little bit anecdotal and hear some of your favorite moments. You spoke a little bit about, about learning from these guest speakers. There's so many. I know. <laughs> Professor McLean recruited a PhD recent graduate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm drawing a blank on her name, I'm sorry to say, but she 
she's the one that did the research on women's leadership in government in uh, different areas of the world. She's focused on one region in particular, in Middle Pakistan? Eastern. Yeah, I think it was Pakistan. Yeah. yeah. So I found that a really insightful and descriptive currently what's going on in another country with women and representation in government. I was able to go to Sweden about 25 years ago and look at women in representative government there because they were leading the way in many ways of having equal representation. So it was just really wonderful all these years later to hear another study so in depth that really focused on the advancement of women in a more equitable way in their culture, which we have still a long ways to go here in the United States. So that's one thing we tried to do too, is start with the U.S., but then we kept going out and then back in, thinking more comparatively and internationally. So Maria Wakar was the PhD student that worked on female representation in the legislature in Pakistan, and she did a whole bunch of interviews with all of these legislators some of whom had their seats because of new gender quotas. Mm -hmm. And so really thinking about gender quotas and how does that change the game? And, but then how are women actually able to substantively get things passed? And then we had another PhD student from political science, Catherine Johnson, who worked on participation in women who were living in Mali and Burkina Faso. And so both of these contexts are places that probably people think that women don't have a lot of space to participate. And one of the things I liked learning about was what were those spaces that women were able to carve out and really have some agency and participate and shape the decisions around them. So even if it's not voting, how there may be other ways that they participate. So one of the things she highlighted was small sort of savings groups where women came together, contributed small bits, and then were able to do public good projects and support each other. And then how they would learn how to work together or not learn, but like become more of a group and then seek decisions or, or seek assistance from lower levels of, of like a mayor or a superfire or something and ask. So then they would be joining together as women. Yeah, I, I loved learning about those comparative aspects. I'm embarrassed to say that I'd never heard of gender quotas, which I thought was so, so fascinating. The idea that a certain proportion of legislative seats, for example, might be reserved uh, for women. Although I also learned that that didn't necessarily guarantee equality or actual substantive representation, but that was just fascinating. And I think particularly Katherine Johnson's work on Mali and Burkina Faso was really mind-blowing for the students because I'm sure we all came in with these, the very stereotypes that Lauren points out. And it was just really interesting to learn about various ways of participating in politics. In fact, I believe you titled that section, Lauren, um, what is it? Politics is not just voting or something <laughs> along those lines. You know, another professor we had was from history, Michelle Moyd. Again, some of the professors who came in they weren't necessarily experts in suffrage, but they were helping us understand suffrage and the exercise of citizenship through their research. And I just learned so much. I mean, she was thinking about citizenship 
and masculinity. So here we have this course that's focused on celebrating women's right to vote in a certain way. And she's talking about, well, let's think about how masculinity is sort of tied up with citizenship and the way that people's duty to participate in the military and looking at how African-American men and Native American men had participated in different ways in the military, even before getting the right to vote. A lot of people think about military service as the ultimate duty as a citizen, but even doing that before you had the right to vote and, and thinking about then the implications for women who weren't serving. It was just a really interesting set of questions. I'm thinking now of Colin's discussion around the sort of mobilization of the LGBT community. He really brought us through from like the early days. And these are things that like predate our students' birth, but the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis. And many of them have heard about Ryan White, from living in Indiana, mm -hmm. but it really gave another perspective on how the, the community came together, how the crisis, which again, this is coming back to Stephanie's point about COVID, thinking about HIV AIDS as a pandemic compared to COVID. I mean, it was fascinating. Stephanie, you have some terrific faculty in general. Yeah, you know, we were actually, Colin gave that talk on election night. So uh, it was, <laughs> and it so, was And riveting. he managed to grab our attention. It even was though riveting. We were riding uh, with anxiety. <laughs> uh, and, the, and he started out with a list of words, you know, that people be thinking about today, including Dr. Anthony Fauci who of course was key during the HIV pandemic yes. as well. <laughs> so it was very interesting. And how, what moves people from kind of despair to activism? I mean, one of the things we keep talking about are what tactics different, yeah. you know, so thinking about the women and like, how did they organize at Seneca Falls? How did they organize prior to to the 1920? And thinking about these activists and what moves them and what kinds of tactics and images do they use? And, and one thing we were able to do with the students was provide an opportunity for them to have a role play experience, to be mm -hmm. able to play out these tactics and strategies in a way. So of course, the whole course is an intersection of all four of our units. But at the same time, this, this was a little bit more in the history pace mm -hmm. uh, sort of intersection for the role play. They were in early 20th century. It was based on reacting to the past, which is a, basically a role-playing game, a very complex and elaborate and well-done mm -hmm. role-playing game where students were, you know, they were suffragists, they were um, anti-suffragists, <laughs> they were men, they were women. Some of them were more radical. Some of them were more conservative. They were also laborers. And there was a lot of tension at the time between the labor movement and the suffrage movement and which rights should be given priority for the And time. the bohemians. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They were yeah. artists and bohemians, which made it very fun in Greenwich Village, <laughs> New York City. So, so that was a piece of the experience for students, too, which they, they seemed to get a lot out of. And they had an opportunity to practice, again, the, the language of the time and what it means to speak about the rights of suffrage and try to sort of defend it and try to convince others to, to join your cause, which did tie into the, the call in peace and social mm -hmm. movements and uh, in different ways. It's, it's amazing all the intersections and the connections of the different units. So there was a lot of aha moments when we'd be listening to 
a speaker in one section that we, I think back a few weeks earlier, mm -hmm. oh, somebody said that similarly, but very differently too. And mm -hmm. wow, you know, it just starts to bubble in your mind differently. And the students really talked about stuff like that and seemed to get a lot out of it. And the class itself was, we had speakers, but it was highly discussion-based. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think that's important to, to talk about too. Yeah, and, and we've done this all via Zoom, which is, it's miraculous to me that it's worked as well yeah. as it has. I mean, because even when we simulation. Started, yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah. we started planning, this was what, last, what, September 2019, you know, this was going to be an in-person class. Right. We were going to we were going to be there. We were going to have people physically come visit the class. <laughs> and, and uh, but it, yeah, even the role-playing games seemed to work uh, virtually. And we were in costumes. Well, well <laughs> pr Professor McLean was in costume. <laughs> were you a bohemian in Greenwich Village, Dr. McLean? No, I was a suffragette. <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. Suffragette. Yes. <laughs> with a sash it was great That's <laughs> yeah. a, a big part of the success was the great students I thought we had they really did mm -hmm. you know participate in discussion so you didn't have that kind of empty zoom moment <laughs> very <Yeah>. often <laughs> and they were from all different backgrounds you know and they really brought those different perspectives which was fun yeah I'm curious about the reciprocity their reactions to the different speakers like was there ever a moment that was so clearly an aha moment for all the students that was like, oh, something just clicked? I think one of the aha moments for many of the students, because many times the students will introduce themselves to a speaker. And so you get to hear what they've taken away from the course thus far. It was one of the first classes, but it was then reinforced later by one of our law school professors, this idea that voting isn't a right. And that there's nowhere in the Constitution that says that you have the right to vote. It's just that you can't bar certain groups from voting mm. or participating. And, and that was kind of an aha moment for all of us, and especially leading up to the election. One of the students right before break, you know, oftentimes the speakers will come in and say, how's the class going? What are you learning? Or we'll debrief with them afterward. And one of the students just la last class we had said, you know, I didn't realize how long it took, <laughs> like how long the struggle was. And it's funny because we've been talking about that since week one. And she's like, I know we've been talking about it, but it just really hit me, you know, over 70 years. And that's only 70 years of like what's been documented, right? We had uh, the president of the League of Women Voters come in because we tried to pull in some community grounded, mm -hmm. you know, practical perspectives too. And, you know, she was helping us identify evidence of it long before uh, the middle of the 19th century. So I thought that we all kind of giggled when we heard that from the student because it's like, yeah, like, are we really comprehending like how many years that is and how many people died and did the work their whole life and never saw the results of their, you know, the fruits of their labor. So that's, that was definitely a big aha for at least one of them. And I think several mm -hmm. as well. And I think how long, but also like how it's not like an aha political fact, like you may change the law or the rule, but then 
it doesn't all work out so neatly <laughs> and it doesn't all get so there was many critiques of several of the films that had these like really fluttery endings and it's not a fluttery perfect ending and that one of the things I feel like we've emphasized is how much hard work went into getting something changed and then how much hard work goes into making sure it gets implemented or really living it. Yeah. I mean, democracy is fragile and we've learned that over the Mm -hmm. past uh, several weeks, but I too was floored um, to realize that, no, there is no, affirmative right to vote. And I really should be read out of the historical (laughs) profession. But I think a lot of us were, because I have always said when I've taught the US history survey that the 19th amendment gave women the right to vote. Well, actually it did no such thing. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. simply barred the US government or its states from denying or abridging that right on the basis of sex. So uh, again, I think what's so useful about this class was it really challenged not just the students, but uh, well, I'll speak for myself, certainly challenged me, but I think uh, all of us uh, to think in in new ways and to question all kinds of established narratives Mm -hmm. or things we thought of as facts, which turned out not to be. That's absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it came up earlier about celebrating the the, Mm -hmm. um, centennial. That was a super small part of it, Uh, but it, it was less about celebrating and more about commemorating it and looking at the work we still have ahead. Mm-hmm. So, cause you can't get too excited and celebrate too much when you know that, I mean, so many of these issues have been repeating and repeating and voter suppression. And yeah. um, in the gender studies section, we watched a great documentary film about that. And it's just such a, a common recurring problem and pattern that we know needs a lot of work ahead. And as we mentioned before, not just for women, but people of color, especially and indigenous people, there's a a road ahead and uh, the students seem a bit fired up and ready to take it on. And and I think they can be more articulate now, understanding the history more clearly and seeing these issues of intersectionality between all four of our units and then some, I mean, my goodness, Mm -hmm. it goes so much beyond even our four units. Yeah. And not taking like, you know, Wendy just said, you know, that democracy is fragile, not taking it for granted. I felt like our students were sort of on edge thinking about voting rights and thinking about being able to enact and exercise that franchise. And we traded stories about how long we waited in line and where, and, you know, what was the best strategy? Was it to mail it in? Was it, you know, and we, we talked about it. It was such a good group and we all did this learning together, but we were treading on very sensitive, controversial, difficult topics. Um, And, and I think we really tried to approach them in a nonpartisan way to think about what do we have in common as we're thinking about democratic institutions and the importance of us as citizens. So I think that was really effective. Yeah, we were able to, in the very first class, come to 
well, I guess it took more than one class, but we figured out some class agreements, like similar yeah. to what we do in the PACE issue forum, you know, just like, how do we have these very difficult conversations, knowing that there's going to be a lot of sensitive things, we should establish some you know, guidelines and boundaries and one of the things that came up that the students asked for, which I thought was incredibly insightful that I've never had students really bring up before was um, trigger warnings. Cause a lot of the materials we yeah. thought about, talked about, or even viewed were hard to watch. And, and yeah. so being able to um, factor that in the sensitivity of um, uh, for each student and the care and concern that things may be triggering because of people's past experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really important too. And I also was really impressed that one student suggested that we add to these agreements to assume that everyone has good intentions, that okay. no one, even if somebody says something that inadvertently offends someone else, to assume that they are speaking from good intentions, which I thought was uh, a really wonderful and useful insight. And, and again, one of the things I learned and what's been so wonderful working with Lisa Marie, Stephanie and Lauren is this idea of coming to a set of class agreements. Um, that's not something I've, I've done before, but I definitely will do that in future classes that I teach. Mm -hmm. I wish we had more of a chance to team teach. So maybe I'll put a plug in there. Because <laughs> yeah. I think just, you know, not only do you learn more about other perspectives, you get to know other colleagues, but you also sort of learn pedagogically about other ways of teaching that are just by being part of it. So it's sort of this ethnographic approach to... <laughs> pedagogy that I just loved. You literally took the words out of my mouth. I was just thinking <laughs> about how this co-teaching experience could change pedagogy and like there's so much more care put into each lesson to have four people there. Um, I, I just think it was a little intimidating at first, like the oh, yeah. first student <laughs> to come in. We would, we would usually let them wait in the waiting room so that they could come in en masse. Because <laughs> to see your four professors kind of perched in the Zoom. Oh. It's understandably but they intimidating got to know us. four people to impress, not just one. <laughs> We're not a tough crowd, though. So no. no. <laughs> yeah, I think it was probably tricky for the students to 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 navigate. You know, who do I turn to? What do I do? I think you know we sort of had had Wendy uh, as the main the main instructor in, in many ways to 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 field some student questions. But um, but by and large, yeah, we were we were a team for them, and they went they rolled with it. They were awesome, mm -hmm. and I think it was. Well, I hope it was good for them to watch us ask questions of the mm -hmm. presenters. And I hope that we modeled learning and inquiry in, in a way that was useful for the students. Team teaching is really fun. It's really intellectually uh, engaging. And it's, it's nice not to feel so lonely. <laughs> I guess mm -hmm. that, I don't mean that, you know, students are wonderful. I always love my students, but I'm the one who's 
has the sole responsibility or I feel that I have the sole responsibility and it's just really been fun to have other shoulders to lean on or cry mm-hmm. on I guess sometimes <laughs> <laughs> no not not many tears <laughs> laugh with for sure laugh with. <laughs> Thanks so much to Professors Napoli, Gamber, Sanders, and McLean for reflecting about their course with Nora and myself. The music for the intro and outro is Moonrise by Chad Crouch, provided by freemusicarchive.org under a non-commercial license. Thanks so much for listening. This has been an episode of Democracy, a podcast by Themester.